remind everyone in this hall that we are the ones who teach the classes, who staff the offices, who guide the students when they're lost, comfort them when they despair, and lift them up and do our best every day to educate the future generation and to send them on their way to a bright future. It is our profound honor. It is our profound honor to work with young people. We, we do never take it for granted that we have their trust and the trust of their parents and the people who raise them at home. And the bedrock of that trust, the principle on which that trust is built, is the fact that we uphold the promise of public education when we go to school. That for us, the work of our union, the work of our union is that public education stands for something. It stands for the future, the, the promise of future generations. It stands for what our country should be. It stands for our aspirations and our hope for the young and for the future. And that is what we represent when we go to work. That is what we represent when we put on a red shirt we, and when we stand together as a union and nothing less. And so we do not, we do not apologize when we demand pay and benefits because we deserve dignity at work. But it is about way more than just pay. It is about, it is about dignity. It is about the fact that our schools suffer from critical staffing shortages. It is about the people who go to work in the schools need support. They, we need coworkers who can support students who suffer from poverty and trauma. It's about smaller classes so the teachers can give students individual attention. It is that the schools Chicago students deserve. And that was Jesse Sharkey, the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, speaking at a big contract rally recently as the teachers gear up for a potential strike. And I'll, in fact, be talking to two members of the Chicago Teachers Union today. And I'll also be asking the question, what's the matter with Ohio? This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for October 2nd, 2019. This podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job and decent pay and benefits and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees and nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers. And as the longtime listeners know, you can hear the podcast on the Progressive Radio Network Thursdays at 6 p.m. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, you name it. We depend not just on our major sponsor, but small financial supporters. So please do go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, and look for our link to Patreon so you can become a financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. First, a quick update on an important issue that we had on last week's podcast, and in fact, on podcast episode number 141, which you can find in our archive. After an all-night bargaining session, workers at Fred Meyer, the supermarket chain that was a target of a boycott that was called by UFCW Local 555, well, those workers won a tentative agreement that was announced in the early morning hours of this past Saturday. The main issue, as you may recall from last week's discussion, was rampant pay discrimination against women. And though the details of the deal are still under wraps until all members are briefed, I'm guessing, since that was a central issue, the discrimination against women, that women are going to get a better deal at work. So woohoo for the victory. And now you can return to shop at the store.
So teachers are on the ramparts again, and this time it's in Chicago, where the members of the Chicago Teachers Union are gearing up for a possible strike if they can't get a decent contract to improve wages, get a hard cap on class size, and of course, increase the staffing. Now, I've covered, as my longtime listeners know, the teacher uprisings on this podcast for a long time. And those uprisings have happened all across the country. This one has a lot of similarities to the ones in Arizona, West Virginia, Oklahoma, Kentucky, North Carolina, Florida, and California, all of which we featured on this podcast. And again, you can find that in our archive. The conditions for teachers everywhere is a moral obscenity. What's a little different, perhaps, is that this one is in Chicago, a huge city with a large Democratic voting base, while most of the other teacher uprisings took place in smaller cities in relatively more conservative territory. But that's the point. Teachers are being abused everywhere by politicians of all stripes. In fact, the odious Rahm Emanuel, the previous mayor, was a shill for charter schools and the elites who went to war against public school teachers. The current mayor, Lori Lightfoot, made noises when she was running for the job earlier this year about not being as hostile as Rahm Emanuel to the teachers' union. And then surprise, once in office, she now is opposing most of the important proposals advanced by the teachers' union to make teaching tolerable, meaning having a manageable class size, and to fairly compensate teachers. To talk more about the struggle for a good contract, I'm joined by Andrea Parker, an English teacher and a union vice president, and Robin Blake Boos, a first grade teacher. And this struggle for the Chicago Teachers Union has really echoed all across the country. And it's true that teachers have seen lots of uprisings in many states across the country. I've been covering that in this podcast, Robin and Andrea, for a number of months, the uprisings in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Kentucky, Arizona. And I want to talk a little bit about what you think might be either different or the same in your uh, struggle to get a decent contract. And I first wanted to ask each of you a little bit about your background. And maybe I'll start with you, Andrea. Why did you become a teacher and what kind of teacher are you? What inspired you to become a teacher? Um, good question. Um, <clears throat> I have a background in journalism. I went to college and I majored in journalism. And when I graduated, I was doing some freelance work and I was, you know, subbing to make ends meet. And while I was subbing, I was looking at the, um, looking at the, you know, looking at the curriculums, and I saw that a lot of cases there was not a lot of curriculum, especially in the middle school, um, and I have the same things that I had growing up, and I saw a lack of passion for writing and reading, and that was my thing. I love to read. I love to write. I thought it was a way of understanding our world better, and I said this, this got to change, and I said, you know what? I, I just like let me go back to school and get my degree in education. And that way I can still have my love of journalism, my love of writing, my love of reading, and be able to teach this to others. 
I wanted to make a small joke as a freelance writer myself. When you said you were a freelance writer, I said you decided probably that you needed to get a real job that could actually pay you a weekly salary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay. Nobody told me it was going to be like this in journalism school. Yeah, yeah. I knew. I I know that tune. And so, um, Robin, you wrote to me that you've been teaching actually for 27 years, and that you came out of a actually a family where education was a real big thing, right? Yes. My mother um, was a teacher for 40 years at CPS. She did um, wow. 40 years of service. Um, also, she was a big influence on me going back to school, as well as mentors. When I was a teacher assistant, um, and in Chicago we say teacher assistant or paraprofessional, um, I did that for 15 years. Before I started, to, oh, okay, let me go back. And I saw the salary that the teachers were making, and I would be subbing because the principal would put me in as a sub until the actual sub came. So my mentor, which is um, Bass, her name is Beverly Bass. She's also on the Wicked Foul bargaining team. She influenced me. She said, look, this is what you could be making. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Let me go and see about this. So I went back and I got a master's in education. And from that point on, I've been teaching for the last, what, 10 years? Because a part of that time is also embedded in as a TA. They gave me all that. When I graduated, they decided they had the, the contract that was in act that was active at that time, guaranteed me that if I went back to school, I could get five years on a pay scale as well as I could be on step, um, come in as not a beginning teacher, but a teacher at a level five. So that was very encouraging for me as well. Um, over the past 27 years of teaching, I've watched things change over time, and something has changed for the good and some things have not. And what resonates with me the most with this going on is class size. You know, last year I taught second grade and I had 40 students in my classroom as a second grade teacher. I had to contact the union. The unions um, then contacted Chicago Public Schools. They sent the teacher assistant, but still the capacity was just overwhelming. It was overwhelming. And so now I, I find myself being dedicated. Um, and I don't mean, I don't care if I have to take this on a national level. Because this is what resonates, and this is how I feel as a teacher. I don't feel that no teacher should be in a classroom with more than 25 students at the max. You know, because it's not just the teacher, it's the students. Our students' needs are not being met. You know, we talk about equity, but what about justice for our children? What about justice? For sure. And a couple of the other things that I noted, class size is a really important issue in this struggle. And I've seen that on your website. And there are other issues, obviously, better pay and benefits for teachers and fully staffed schools. And I wonder then, um, Andrea, to to throw it to you, what is really resonating with you in terms of the struggle? What's your number one uh, point that really inspires you to get out there and fight? And what are you hearing from your you know, fellow teachers, what's really driving this campaign? Yeah, um, there are several sticking points, but one sticking point is um, the the school resources and staffing, as Robin had alluded to. Uh, our kids, um, especially in low-income neighborhoods, go without so much. Um, 
no uh, a nurse only once a week, a psychologist twice a week. And uh, when the psychologist is there, they instead of them being able to speak to the children and deal with any traumatic issues, they're there just, you know, doing IEPs. And I'm not saying IEPs are not important because they are, but they're not there full time and they cannot be used to their fullest capacity. And so I have students that deal with trauma who would love to talk to someone, but cannot because the psychologist, the counselor, they're not available. Instead of the counselor, again, counseling students with certain issues, she has to deal with eighth grade graduation, high school, uh, you know, high school application, those types of things. They're constantly being pulled in other directions. So that is an issue for me. Um, we had a bullying issue and I had a psychologist, a psychologist come in. She did an awesome presentation on bullying that really inspired my students. Many students wanted to go talk to her, but again, she was unavailable. She had to do meetings and, you know, collaborate with the social worker. So like nobody was actually there to talk to the kids because none of them are there every single day, once or twice a week. So we don't have, like, for example, my school has art this year. Uh, this is my fifth year at this particular school. I've been with CPS nearly 16 years. And in this school, this is my fifth year there. And we just had an art teacher this year. We have no music. So it's like always a back and forth, either no, either art and no music or music and no art. Or last year, we went out, we went without both of them. We had neither one. And so what, what, when I think about that, I think about a parent. We are one district, right? And so we have about 600 schools. We are one district. And so when one school has all these things and another school does not, and we're the same district, I'm starting to look at my employer, like, what's the problem? I'm not going to have three children, and I, give, and I take my child on a trip to New York. I feel like my child should see Broadway or look at things and explore New York, and I leave my other two children behind. I wouldn't be considered a good parent. What would be my reason for taking one child on the trip and leaving the other behind and leaving them to, without exposure? That's what I feel like CPS is doing. You're, you're, get, you're allowing other, some students to benefit, but everybody does not. And so when somebody's left behind, that's a problem. And it shows a lack of equity. So one of the things that I noted when I did the various segments on this podcast about the other teacher struggles and the uprisings, as I call them in other states, was the shockingly low pay of teachers. And I think that's it's such an immoral situation that in this country, our teachers, the people who actually are educating the future generations, are paid so poorly to the point where... I talked to some teachers who actually had to go and use food banks in order to get through the month in order to feed their families. This is in the United States of America where we claim to really value teachers. And I wonder, this is my question, if you can answer each of you, and maybe we'll start with Robin now, what is the situation for teachers in terms of their ability to basically pay the bills and the current situation with their current pay and their current scale and the current contract? Well, with the con current contract, it's, it's impossible. We have some um, paraprofessionals who can, uh, they can barely afford to do anything. They can qualify for free lunch. They're qualifying yep, yep. for free lunch. You know, they are um, poverty stricken. They're qualifying for free lunch, which I think is ridiculous. And they're a CPS employee. As far as the teachers are concerned, the vet teachers are no longer benefiting from the contract. Because of the simple fact, 
there's only so many steps that the vet teacher can go to. I think it ends at step 16. We're trying to now in this fight enable the steps to be increased and enable the paraprofessionals, which are the teacher assistant, to benefit from the same steps as the teachers. If they achieve master's degrees, bachelor's degrees, then they should benefit the same amount of money as we do. We, we are not, uh, we're not any different. If they're going back to school and getting the same thing, then why shouldn't they not benefit from it as well? As far as the teachers, and my concern, my, uh, my, my really concern is that they took away deferred pay. So now teachers do not get paid year round. They're saying that they're not going to bring that back year round. They can, they can make it where we are on a 12 month scale for the whole year. That way they can embed that money in and we can be paid all year round instead of what the scale that we are on now. So now a lot of teachers are suffering over the summer months because they might have not saved their money because it might have been an emergency, could have been a medical emergency. My mom now is ill. So I have to take care of her and do things for her. So, I mean, emergencies happen. So it's, you know... It's not working. So, Andrea, do you know of colleagues, teachers who have a hard time paying their bills on the current salary? Oh, absolutely, especially new teachers. But, yeah, like a lot of teachers that I do know who are single, they have, in order to make ends meet, and live in a decent neighborhood because these are the rising costs of housing in our country, or especially in our city. Um, yeah, definitely have to have roommates. Uh, of course, be, be married. If, if you're just single uh, with children, it's going to be definitely a challenge for you. Uh, you would, it's like you definitely have to have several roommates or be married with a working spouse, you know, two or three income household to definitely make ends meet, especially when you have new teachers who have to pay uh, more into their pension than veteran teachers. So it, it's a lot. So definitely newer teachers have a big struggle with a high cost of housing and be having to pay more into their pension and not making more than a veteran teacher or, or even getting those steps, you know, uh, quicker than in the past. So it is much harder. And then like when I started, our raises were a little more than that. You know, we had like maybe a 4% raise annually. Now it's um, 2% um, sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, one year we didn't get a raise at all. So they're not, newer teachers are not uh, growing in their salary as much as, you know, once we did maybe like 15 years ago. So it's hard even to get a raise or grow today. And, and your point is right. The cost of living, especially housing, especially in a city like Chicago, uh, New, New York, San Francisco, the cost of housing just eats up so much of people's pay that it's just um, almost impossible to make ends meet. One of the charts, and this is where I want to wrap up our conversation, uh, one of the charts that really struck me, and I this is now moving into the arena of politics, was a great chart, and I encourage my listeners to go to the Chicago Teachers Union website and find this chart where you compare the proposals from the Chicago Teachers Union, and then there's another row which has the positions of Lori Lightfoot when she was running for mayor, in other words, when she was a candidate. And then the final row has the positions of Mayor Lightfoot, meaning when Mayor Lightfoot 
won the election since the election, along with the school district. And it's, I'm going to be sarcastic a little bit. I'm shocked, shocked to see that candidate Lightfoot said one thing when she was running for office and now as mayor is, is not really following through on uh, what she had promised, essentially, and I assume the union probably was behind her. I remember when Rahm Emanuel was mayor, he was quite anti-union, very much in favor of charter schools, not a friend of labor. And I assume that you all thought that when Lori Lightfoot would come into office, things would get better, right? Absolutely. Yes, because she made a promise. She made a promise to the CTU, Chicago Teachers Union. And that's why... She promised us that she would be fair. She would not be like another Ronnie Manuel, who did not even care about listening to the Chicago Teachers Union. He didn't have no parts, like you say, he favored charter schools. And she always said that she would not be that way, that she would look into all the different um, things that were coming that we were coming up against. But she's not keeping that promise. She's not. And all we need her to do is put it in writing. And they refuse to put it in writing. Well, for example, um, obviously the union is advocating, as we talked about, for raises. During her campaign, the union has the in this chart says her position was unclear. And right now she's actually rejecting those proposals. And so, Andrea, yeah. I, I wonder, Andrea, from your perspective, what do you think of the mayor's positions now compared to when she was a candidate? Well, I'm sorry, my it's just typical for me. I mean, I just feel like sometimes people say whatever they can to, to get elected. Um, the Chicago Union did not endorse her. Um, I she she did say some good things, um, but she was not somebody that we endorsed. And so I just feel like um like what many candidates do, they go back on their word and when once they get elected. So, um I feel bad that this is what it is. I feel bad that this relationship uh, is the way it is. I feel like it could be better. Uh, I feel like it's a little hostile. And I'm just hoping it's for something better. I, um, I wish he would put it in writing because we can say, I'm going to add 250 nurses to your school. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But it is not enforceable. If there's nothing we can do about it, if we don't have a nurse, if there's nothing we can do when our class right. sizes are too large and it's not in writing and it's not enforceable, then what is the point of your promise? I don't want my your the consequence to be, oh well, if she don't meet the promise, then we just won't vote for her again. We just, you know, we'll get her out of office. That's not good enough for our kids. That I, I don't want another mayor just to do the same thing. I don't want it to just you get out of office. I want you to do what these kids need or I want the kids to benefit right now. I don't want to keep waiting. I don't want to hear the promises. They don't want to hear it. They want to see something substantial, something tangible. And so this is simple. As you had said earlier, this is a moral issue. Our kids need nurses in every school. They need uh, smaller class size. There is no way that a child should be in a class with 40 kids. I had 43 last year. I did get an assistant, but even still, that's still a lot for me and for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yeah. like it's even a, a fire hazard. It's a problem. That many bodies in one room who are trying to learn foundational fundamental skills. This is not a college lecture hall where you have people who are already knowledgeable about things. These are kids who are trying to get foundational skills mastered. And they cannot do that when there's too much diversity of needs in the classroom. So I don't I don't know what the I don't know what the pushback is. I, I don't know what the reason is, but it does not make sense to me. 
we are people who educate. We educated every person in their career. Every teacher has educated somebody in public office. How dare you say what you cannot do? I feel like when you when you don't care, you make excuses. But when you do care, you make an effort. So this is what's being shown to me and my students. And Robin, what's your view on that? I with Andrea on that because I feel that she has not kept her word. You know, they know I'm sitting at the board. I'm sitting in the bargaining. I see them. They know what's going on. They pretend like they don't know. They know exactly what's going on. I'm sorry, I disagree. They know that I've told them and other teachers have told them, they've heard our voices that this, the classrooms are overcrowded, that we need more clinicians. We need more nurses in our school. We need more, you know, things of trauma is happening, especially in the community that I'm in. You know, when you are in a more poverty-stricken area, it's more traumatizing things happening to these children. We have to be mindful of why are we here? We're here for the children. We're not here to make your political uh, rise even more. No, we're not here for that. We're here for our children. hell is the matter with Ohio? And I mean it in this way. I just came across an important study from Policy Matters Ohio. That's the name of the organization. And the study is called The State of Working Ohio 2019 Realities and Remedies. And the study lays out some hard facts about wages, inequality, job prospects that end up with the bottom line that working people are hurting in Ohio. And that's certainly true all across the country, but certainly Ohio is a great barometer if you think about the history of Ohio, which had lots of factory jobs and wages that were very good because those factory jobs were highly unionized. You would think that people there would be ready to revolt, to overthrow the oligarchs and the elites and the corporate raiders who have effectively strip-mined the economy, destroying factory jobs and making sure new jobs don't have decent wages partly because those same raiders fight unions tooth and nail. It's worth understanding what's happening in Ohio from an economic and political standpoint for the following reason. It's a great example how full-throated populism can work. Even though Ohio voted for Trump and also elected a very mediocre mind named Mike DeWine as governor, Ohio also reelected Senator Sherrod Brown, a progressive and a clear populist, quite comfortably in 2018. In fact, Sherrod defeated that mediocre mind named Mike DeWine in 2006 when DeWine was the incumbent senator of Ohio. So to talk about the Policy Matter Ohio report, it's great to bring in Amy Hanauer, the organization's executive director. And when I read this incredible report, Amy, as I looked at the actual details and the information that you produced, 
what came to mind was that old saying going back to 2004. You may remember the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? And I immediately thought, what's the matter with Ohio? And I meant that in a political sense, which we can talk about sort of at the end of our conversation, that here you have all this data that shows that workers should be really, you know, in revolt, and yet Ohio has trended in some political elections at the statewide level, certainly, to be more Republican, slightly conservative, and it's it's one of those quote-unquote battleground states that people say are trending slightly towards Republicans. Donald Trump won Ohio, even though, however, Sherrod Brown was reelected pretty uh, easily. But my, my main point was, here you have a snapshot in Ohio in all the data you gathered about what's happening to working people. And the first thing I thought we would do is just go over some of this data for you to dig into it a little bit and have a conversation. And the first thing that jumped out at me was obviously your incredible digging down into the what you call wage weakness. And I'll just quote from the part of the report that's called reality, and then I'll let you riff on this. And you, and you say here in the report, in fact, of the state's 10 most common jobs, only one registered nurse pays enough at the median for a family of three to escape 200% of the poverty line, a common measure of job quality. Now, that was pretty shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, you know, we've got these very common jobs, and nine out of ten of them, people are making, you know, under thirty-something thousand dollars a year. So you have people who really can't get by and really can't support a family. And so then people are kind of cast on their own. They're cast on their own to manage the needs of their families. And they're cast on their own to figure out this new economy and figure out what they're going to do that is self-sustaining and that's going to allow them to have a life of decency. And, you know, I think that that's, that's kind of at the core of what Senator Brown likes to talk about. And I think that that's no um, secret, you know, that that's, that's no surprise that he continues to get elected when some other people can't. Because what is most fundamentally concerning is that Ohio used to be a place where you came for good jobs and good wages and to have a good life and have a good future for your kids. And it's just eroding and no longer fully that for people. And your important connected point to that, which is really, really crucial, is the decline of unionized jobs. And that you see across the Midwest. That's not just in Ohio, but certainly that's true in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in West Virginia, if you look at the coal industry. But certainly the decline of unions in Ohio is crucial and connects to what you're talking about in terms of the kind of jobs people are getting and whether they can make a real living wage from those jobs. That's right. I mean, I think that we, we we sort of glorify the manufacturing industry as if those were amazing jobs kind of in and of themselves. And it's true that manufacturing kind of has um, a lot of reverberation throughout the economy and it's a high productivity job. But the fact is those jobs were good jobs because a combination of public policy and worker muscle made them into good jobs um, because, you know, workers fought to have those jobs be represented by unions, and then they fought to get good contracts. Mm. Yes, and that's such a great point to make. And I think let's go over that again, because 
If you look back at the beginning of the 20th century, those industrial jobs in auto and steel, they were crappy jobs and they were very dangerous jobs. And it wasn't until in the auto industry, the UAW organized that industry, the Steelworkers Union, the USW, United Steelworkers, uh, organized the steel industry. And of course, then the strength of the United Mine Workers in the coal industry made those jobs not only better paying, but also a whole lot safer. A lot fewer people got killed in mine collapses and disasters. So your point, I think, then looking forward is there's no reason that a service sector job, say a janitorial job or another job, say a cashier or certainly working at Walmart, those could be very good jobs if workers had the muscle through their unions, right? Exactly. And I think you know, the problem is that we have made it a lot harder to organize and we've kind of gotten out of the habit of organizing as well. And so, you know, and you mentioned three jobs that are that tend to be low paid um, that are sometimes unionized and sometimes not. And when they're unionized, of course, they're much better. But, you know, some of the jobs that you didn't mention are other service sector jobs that really are arguably incredibly important to all of our collective futures. I mean, the people who are taking care of our children, the people who are um, taking care of our elderly family members, it's kind of unfathomable to me that we have deemed these jobs to be less important and less worthy of a decent wage than the manufacturing jobs of yesterday, because they're certainly pretty crucial to our collective well-being. And the other point you make that's very closely connected to the power of unions and the way in which they protected and bolstered people's wages is the question of race. Because for a lot of African-Americans, certainly the migration of many African-Americans from the South to the North to the industrial jobs that were growing in the North, you look at the decline of unionization. And in parallel, it's not the only reason that African-Americans, people of color are making less, but you point out that black Ohioans earn over $10,000 less each year than white Ohioans if both work full-time year-round, and I assume at roughly a comparable job. So there's certainly racism inherent in what we're looking at in terms of the economy. It's not just in Ohio. This is true throughout the country. But talk about Ohio for a moment. Sure. And just the the stat that you just mentioned was at the median. So it wasn't really comparing job to job, but just for workers across the board. And what I I think is particularly heartbreaking about that statistic, Jonathan, is that it's actually tripled. The wage gap has tripled in percentage terms so that it's now more than 35 percent. It used to be about 11 percent, the gap between black median workers and white median workers in Ohio. Back in the late 1970s, it was at about 11%, and it's now more than three times that. And I think the reason that that's so distressing is, you know, in the late 1970s, I was a little kid, right? And I remember thinking, you know, we're going to keep getting better as a country. Like, like more jobs are going to be open to me than were open to my mom, because more things are going to be possible for a young woman to do. And, you know, the racism that my parents describe has to be getting better, because, um you know, my class is maybe more integrated than my parents' classroom was. And it just turned out that 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 optimism that I think many of us felt when we were growing up turned out to be a little bit misguided because as unions lost power, people of color and African-Americans in particular lost the ability to push for those jobs to be good jobs. 
So it's really a heartbreaking story. But it's not a story that can't be reversed, right? Like, if we could fight to unionize the, the industries that you talked about, the auto industry, the steel industry, the mining industry, if we could fight to unionize those um, back in the 20th century, we can certainly take some risks to unionize jobs today. And it, it's probably less dangerous than it was back then. Now, you do talk about in your report the need to have policy changes that makes the ability to form a union a reality and much easier. Because as you well know, even if a union is able to get into the process of organizing people, meaning they actually get a date and time to set by the National Labor Relations Board to have an election. As you well know, the company does everything possible to fire workers, abuse the law, and there's no real penalty. It's really just a cost of doing business. There's no real penalty to companies breaking the law during a union organizing job. Now, that's at the federal level. And I wonder if you've thought about what can be done to organize worker power at the state level, and you can take Ohio as an example, in the absence of movement at the federal level, we know the political situation makes it almost impossible to actually pass real strong labor law reform, partly because you have one party completely opposed to unions, and then you have the other party, the Democratic Party, and now this is my analysis, that yes, may be in favor of unions when it's convenient, but there's always a segment, like I think of the Joe Manchins of the world, who are not necessarily going to change labor law. They actually have strong, Manchin does, he has strong support from the mine workers because he's been, been behind pension reform. But generally speaking, there's too many conservatives in the party who block real labor law reform. So what is your thinking about what to do in terms of building worker power in the absence of change at the federal level? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that some of it is sort of building it workplace by workplace, um, as, as hard as that may be. And, you know, we've seen some real exciting boomers across the country over the past couple of years, and I know you've reported on many of them. Um, but like here in Ohio, we saw a charter school that won a first contract that, that was organized by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. And, you know, these were a set of teachers. I mean, I had a very touching conversation with one of the teachers working at that school where they were out on strike and the milk truck pulled in and she started to direct him to the door where he should deliver the milk. And he said, lady, I'm not going to cross your picket line. I'm, I'm pulling in to turn around. And she was sort of flabbergasted because she didn't come from a union family and she didn't realize that they were going to have the support of people like the person delivering the milk. And so I think that that was a very heartwarming story. And they were, she was a classic example of the kind of care, um, care sector employee where she really kept emphasizing to me that the reason they really wanted to form a union was because they were concerned about the education and treatment that the kids in their school were getting. It was a school for children with disabilities and a charter school. And they just felt like there weren't really the learning conditions that the kids needed. And I remember kind of saying to her, I mean, that's great and wonderful, but you know, you also have the right to go on strike for fair wages for yourself. But I think that that was a, a classic example of, of someone who didn't necessarily have a labor mentality or a self-interested labor mentality coming around and learning a lot and that they won the first contract and working conditions are much better and the learning conditions for the kids at that school are much better. So I think that we really have to see some of this take place workplace by workplace. Of course, we can talk about some of the policy changes or other changes that can take place at the state level too. Mm -hmm. And so I telegraphed kind of my final question 
to you in the beginning of our conversation because in the conclusion you write, and I put two big exclamation marks near this, um, in fact, bad economic policies have left working people out through good and bad economic times and through Republican and Democratic administrations. And I think that was really a beautiful point because I, I think what you were trying to say here was no matter who's in the political power seat, and it does somewhat make a difference, it still, at the end of the day, has meant that working people have gotten the short end of the stick when you look at how much productivity has increased over the last 30 years. And you pointed out throughout your report that a lot of people, partly because of this wage slowdown and this lack of wage growth, have still not recovered from the so-called economic recession. I call it the economic depression of the 2000s. So your point really is that these bad economic policies really cross the political spectrum and that in order for working people to really fight back and gain back a foothold, it really is about organizing in the workplace. I think that that's right. And I think, look, I think that there is a difference between who's in office. I certainly think that, you know, an administration that expands health care to, you know, a million Ohioans got health care because of the Affordable Care Act. That's very important. Um, you know, in Ohio, the last time we had a Democratic governor, uh, the minimum wage was raised by ballot initiative at the same time. Those things can make a difference. That that governor also put through a clean energy standards, which have now been taken away by um, by an all Republican government in Ohio. So I think that there are big differences that can occur. But I think a lot of the best and most important changes that have occurred, it really requires working people pushing whoever's in office to do the right thing and pushing with all the tools that they have available to themselves, whether that be by ballot initiatives or by legislation. And so, you know, and it, it's some of it is, of course, changing labor law, as you said, but some of it is as simple and straightforward and clear to the average voter as increasing the minimum wage. You know, a higher minimum wage makes it easier to bargain at better wages in your contracts that go beyond whatever the minimum is. Um, but it also just helps a hell of a lot of working people when you raise the minimum wage. And so that's a policy that most people understand. Ohio hasn't raised its minimum wage um, in a fundamental way since 2006. We do have it indexed to inflation, which is a great thing. But, you know, we need to go beyond that now in Ohio. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Andrea Parker and Robin Blake Boos from the Chicago Teachers Union and Amy Hanauer. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. Please do subscribe and support this podcast. You can do that right now, right now, right now, by going over to workinglife.org, looking for the podcast tab, clicking on the link to Patreon, and then signing up as a supporter at whatever level you can afford. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.